I like it. Um, it is Mother's Day, so we've got quite a few people out and about uh, with, with families. Uh, and then the weather's not all that inviting either, is it? It's uh, very windy out there. But we're here, and we're going to have a good conversation, I hope. We are. We are going to. So thanks for coming out. Um, music's still going, eh? It was the slowest fade out ever. Thank you. Is it? Hmm? No, it just stopped now. No, no, that's what we that's what we wanted. No problem. <coughs> Slick operation. Oh no, no problem. <laughs> so um for formation this year so far we've been talking a lot about the Bible. And this is the, the last session, the last time we're ever going to talk about the Bible in this church. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> um, no, this is it. so this is our last session in, in this series. And then from next time on, we're going to begin a few sessions. Oh, kia ora. Welcome. You're forgiven. <laughs> Oh, it's very disruptive. Uh, so, yeah, what we were saying, uh, is this, this is the, uh, the last session in this series on the Bible, and then we're going to start talking about prayer in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, as a part of this, this journey this year, we're really saying, how do we move forward with some of these things that are really central to the Christian life? Uh, but as we think uh, through our faith um, in the kinds of ways that we have been, uh, what does it mean to reimagine some of these practices so that they can make some sense and, and in fact, be a, uh, a nourishing resource for us in our spirituality uh, rather than just a source of um, either something maybe that we used to do that then we're not quite sure how to make sense of now or maybe it just takes some reforming or some rethinking or maybe for you it's just a matter of going from strength to strength. I'm not sure where you're at. Um, but that's going to be a good time and what we're going to do as a part of that prayer series is each week or each time, actually as a part of the time together, uh, introduce some kind of practice as well that might help us to connect with some different ways of thinking about prayer, which will be fun. It'll be good. Um, so our journey with, with thinking about Scripture this year has been in some ways pulling things apart again, which I think is an ongoing uh, practice and an unravelling and a re-ravelling perhaps. Uh, there's, a, there's always a pulling apart to examine and then a putting back together again to move forward another step. And... Uh, my hope has been that as we've talked about some of the different aspects of Scripture, what we're trying to do is say, in fact, rather than just having to see this book as this literal floating down from the sky um, manifesto written by the Lord um, in these very black and white terms, instead it's this big invitation into a beautiful, long conversation, uh, not just a conversation, but really a long participation in this journey of thinking about God and of seeking what it is to relate to God uh, 
and to know God and to know one another in light of that, to wrestle with our humanness as well and what that looks like. And so as we've kind of gone through, and for some of you I know will have been for here for some of them and, and not for others, uh, we've gone through some different ways of thinking about Scripture and also some of the things that sometimes stand as obstacles in our path when we come to engage with the Bible. What do we do with certain kinds of text uh, that maybe in the 21st century we've, we've lost a sense of how to, how to read those in a way that's meaningful for us. Um, and one of the big ideas that we've been, I think, continually coming back to is, is the way in which we see, even within Scripture itself, a, a, an, a, an evolving sense of who God is, of what God is like, um, that actually moves and changes through the story and we get to be a participant in that conversation and to enter into it and to wrestle with one another. Uh, wrestle with one another, figuratively speaking. Uh, so what we want to do tonight is is talk a little, um, Linda's going to come uh, shortly and then I'm going to ask her some questions and then we'll have a bit of an opportunity for some discussion, conversation, uh, questions you might have or thoughts. Uh, and then Linda's going to take us through a, a practice with scripture uh, to finish and then, uh, and then we're going to have pizza and wine. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, um, so we, we're going to talk uh, about transformation tonight, uh, and really, in, in a sense, that's what the spiritual life is about. It's about transformation. It's a well, it, it's a big part of what it's about for me. Um, what does it mean for me to actually change, to and to change, hopefully, in good ways? to become something, to become more of something that maybe I am already becoming. And uh, as many of you know, I have grown up with the Bible uh, and my relationship with it has been all over the place through that, <laughs> through that history. I've always had some kind of relationship connection to it, but it has wildly varied from just loving to sniff it at times uh, I went through that phase where I was just so in love with the physical book. I'm not sure it was actually about the words. I think I just liked the leather and the, and the sort of the, what do they make those, the paper out of? Rice paper, is it? It's just, it's just magic. And then you, a new Bible. I reckon that's why people have so many Bibles a lot of the time. It's just because the new Bible smell is just fantastic. You feel like something of the Lord is present. <clears throat> um, sometimes I've, I've waved my Bible around very passionately. Uh, literally and figuratively, um, not always necessarily thinking about too seriously what's written in there as much as just being passionate about it in general. Um, and sometimes it's been these really meaningful moments for me of, of reading scripture and feeling like in some way I'm encountering God mysteriously present there. Um, so what I'm going to ask is for Linda to come and she's going to join me up here. Oh yes, thank you Linda. Uh, you might know Linda from such places as Edge Kingsland or Patawa. Uh, so I've got some questions for Linda. I'm going to ask her to um, respond to those. And then as we're talking, if there are particular questions or thoughts that come to mind for you, um, then we'll have some time to throw those around and see what you might have to say or, or ask as well um, before we move into some kind of practice. So thanks, Linda. 
Um, here's a question for you then. Are there particular moments or experiences in your life when reading scripture has been transformative for you? Kia ora. <laughs> I, I, um, probably two things stand out for me. Um, there was a season, uh, an experience that I had in life in, when I was in my mid-30s um, that was a time of crisis. And um, it was around the death of my father and I, I put my Bible down, actually. I put it out of view. And um, because I, it no longer, it was no longer able to help me, and so I, it annoyed me. God annoyed me. Um, um, prayer, the idea of prayer, annoyed me. I was very angry, um, because my father had committed suicide, and I had um, been praying for his healing, and reading scripture. And using scripture in such a way that it could, um, almost like a, a lucky rabbit's foot, but I didn't know that at the time. And so, um, and that was partly because of the way that I'd been trained to learn how to engage with the Bible. So I, um, I remember thinking the Bible makes, the aspects of the Bible make no sense because I couldn't understand God, because I couldn't understand how prayer was working because prayer wasn't working for me. And so it was just like this, you know, this cycle of um, things that were going on. So I put it all aside and um, and over, you know, the course of a few months, it took a few months actually, I realised that I had to find a way to, because I deeply loved God and if I deeply loved God, then I had to kind of find a way to, engage with the text and I had to find my way back to prayer because that was the universal language of communication with God so there was this, this, this spiraling thing so I um I've, I found my way into the Psalms and I started reading uh, people like Eugene Peterson and Richard Foster um, he he wrote a book called finding the heart's true home and uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called um um, eat this book, where he started to offer new ways of being with text. And there was a, a saying, it was, um, he, he coined this phrase, we don't read the Bible for information, we read it for formation. And so I realised that I'd been um, almost looking for the texts that would work for my life and that could answer my problems and then use them to say, see, this is what it says. Um, but it wasn't working, so I, I realised that my interpretation and the way that I'd been taught to to read the Bible wasn't working. Um, and it might seem, it might sound like, oh, you're just looking for a, a Bible that works for a God that works for you, Linda, in your context. And you know, yes, I was, <laughs> because I thought, how can I authentically be human, and and live these experiences with 
some other way of being with God that doesn't match up. So I was looking for congruence, I think. What was what was going on on the inside was actually going on was the same as the outside. And I think that's part of our maturity anyway, that as we get older and perhaps mature around these things, we start to go, what, what's going on inside needs to reflect what's going on outside and vice versa. So um, I had an experience with the Psalms and I, um, I realised that David actually, in some of his Psalms that were dark and depressing and distressing, he was depressed. And I thought, oh wow, David, King David was depressed and I was depressed. And as soon as I had a language for that and I realised that there was some story or some person in the Bible that also was demonstrating uh, depressive tendencies, I could fall into that person. And I realised I didn't have to worry about the whole Bible. I didn't have to think about the whole text. I just had to find my way back into the text based on this particular story. And that was my invitation back in. And then I started to realise that the emotions were actually a really good part of our, our, um, our formation, part of our yeah, our formation as, as humans, you know, we used to hear the old adage, um, the emotions lie to you. You know, it's facts, not feelings. Don't trust your fact. Don't trust your feelings. Trust the facts. If the facts, are the but the Bible says it, believe it, even if you didn't feel it. And so there was this complete unraveling of myself, really. And um, I realised that my emotions were really good, and that they were speaking for me, on behalf of me. And here was David, in great distress, speaking. Um, the truth of his situation, and I was invited into that space to be sad and to be down and to be depressed, but not to be without hope. So yeah, it was a it was a really pivotal moment. Um, the second thing that happened was, and this would have happened here in this journey of edge. We it was back in the early days here. Um, we a few my some of my, a few people, Louise was a part of this. Um, we just started unpacking new ways of being with the text, and we had no idea what, really what we were doing. We were just falling over ideas and mystical ideas and um, contemplative ideas, and um, and we just started practising doing things that were just probably quite strange for good old evangelical people, and just started finding our way into new ways of being with, with the text, which was um, very, very formative and um, transformational. So, yeah. Um, I'm very thankful for that experience, that was 25 years ago now, because it helped me let some things go and helped me pick some new things up, and it all came out of death. Yeah, it's, um, it's big stuff. It's interesting how often for us, I think, crisis plays this kind of role uh, and trying to make sense of that in a way which doesn't say, ah, yes, the, you know, God was giving me a crisis to teach me something, which ends up becoming its own kind of problem for me. Um, but yet still recognising that in those moments of crisis, there is an opportunity or, or a um, something is, is disrupted to the point where you almost have to find new ways of being. almost feels like to me there's, there's three, I'm sure there's more, in those moments of crisis, we either hold much, we, we, things get shaken and we, and we double down much more firmly on, on the and sort of entrench ourselves back into that which feels secure or we reject the whole thing and say it's all nonsense or we kind of uh, allow it to push us sort of further into the conversation in some kind of way. So um, 
that sounds like what some of what was that that journey was like um, for you. And talking, I know this is not in your notes, so this is an additional question, supplementary question, um, just on the issue of emotions um, and you know the facts, not feelings, because I was had very similar kind of experience of you know don't let your emotions exist. Uh, certainly don't let them rule over you or, or control you in any kind of way. Um, do you think there is a time when when your emotional self needs to in some way be be um, uh, governed or, or managed or um, subjugated? Thank you. Uh, or is what does it mean to to say our emotions are good, can they take us into less helpful spaces? Um, I think that our emotions are an intricate part of our wiring and we can't ignore them and get rid of them, which is what I think we potentially had been encouraged to do. Um, the emotions are like, for me, they're like, it depends what emotions we're talking about. Some are okay. It's okay that we experience some that are pleasant and that they don't upset the people around us. Um, but it's the other ones that are the more dangerous ones, like anger, for example. And I use that as an example because that's what I felt coming up. And so there was this battle around, I'm not supposed to be angry. What is this saying about me? You know, What will happen to me if I'm angry? Um, there was a sense of anxiety or fear around being angry, for example. And then I, I had this, um, I'm not quite sure um, how it all came about because it's a long time ago, but there was a sense that the ang the emotions are like, our, they're got, they can guide us in a very positive way. So, for example, anger, it's like when we're driving down the street and there are three, li three lights coming. We have the amber, we have green, amber or red and... I was sort of told the amber light is a warning to slow down. The red light is a warning, is telling us to stop. The green light, you know, you can go. So if I think about anger in that way, when I felt angry, there was this amber light going, You're, I'm feeling angry. This is a really good time to slow down and to stop and consider why. And that's not a sin to be angry. It's a warning. There's something going on. If I forget about the amber light and I just go sailing through it, I'm probably going to cause some kind of a crash. And if I go through through the red light, then anger might push me into something that's dangerous for myself and for the people around me. So perhaps that's where it talks about be angry but do not sin, whatever that might mean. And I think sin for me is around, is about my the way I would separate myself or the, the way I would um, um, pull myself away from relationship, good relationship. Um, so um, I think the, all of the emotions are very important. And perhaps some of them just lead us into places that could cause us to go through, crashing through a red light and cause some kind of accident. But we have to learn to interpret and discern our emotions. But never ignore them, because I think the emotions, it would be ridiculous for us to think that our emotions were somehow bad for us when we are actually wired with them. They're, they're in us, they're a part of us, so why would we be trying to push them down? In fact, repressed emotions 
are more of a problem than anything, you know. So honesty and talking about the way we're feeling and having somebody to talk to or taking our emotions. The thing that I learned in, the, in that season was I, I had to talk to God honestly. And I think I thought if I wasn't honest with God, if I was too honest with God, something horrible would happen to me. And so I remember a day <coughs> walking. It was stormy. It was The sky was black. It was threatening rain. I was in a country road. All the sort of um, features of some kind of horror movie, you know. I, I was a bit nervous. I'm like, oh, my goodness, the sky is dark and it's, it's going to be thundery. And, and I was crying and I was angry. And I remember just allowing myself to – I was talking to God and then my, I heard myself get louder and louder and louder till I stopped and I shouted at the universe. And I think my fist was clenched. You know, I'm quite a passive person, really, and not really prone to um, major um, outbursts. Well, I could, I could be um, if I'm pushed. Um, you can talk to Greg later about that. But, um, but I shouted and I gave myself a fright. And I stood there in the road thinking, what's going to happen next? And nothing happened next. There was this beautiful sense of calm that, um, that um, just invaded my space and I kept working, walking, and then I, I turned around at the end of the road. I prayed. I said, oh, God, that was an amazing experience. And I, I think even the sun came out, you know. <laughs> it was this actual experience. And it's like the Psalms um, where David, would, he would um, cry out to God with all of his heart, God, I would you, whether this was David or not, would you take my enemy's children and dash their heads against a rock? <laughs> that's in our Bible. Wow. Is that really what that was this pure sense of pain and anguish that was within this, this the author of that psalm? And then those psalms, those psalms of lament, they start with great honesty. They become very, very um aggressive and then they turn and they go, But you God, you're with me. I'm okay. We're okay. But that could only happen because the psalmist was prepared to be honest about the raw emotion that they were experiencing. They took it somewhere, somewhere safe, and God is safe. So I learned in, the, in that season that God is safe, that I'm not going to fall off some kind of strange edge or some dangerous place. But if I don't be honest and speak honestly and allow my prayers to become honest and let my emotions be a part of it, then I'm just going to go in and there and stuff these things down, which is dangerous. So so I think the emotions have a huge part to play in our prayer life, in our honesty with God. And I think if we were to take our honest thoughts to God in prayer, it might help us calm our honest conversations with people, perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah, that, wow. Um I feel like that is a good challenge, not just for those who are raised in a kind of Christianity that does that, but I think New Zealand in particular is just, we are, we are world experts in suppressing um, emotion, I think, our emotional selves. I was talking to somebody who went to the Harlem Globetrotters um, the other week who were here from the US, and I'd pulled some people out of the crowd to engage in these, you know, dance competitions. <laughs> just said, it must be such a different experience from, say, touring, you know, the US or wherever it is. Pulled these Kiwis out of the crowd to, and, and they all just refused to dance and slunk back to their seats. <laughs> it's like classic kind of Kiwi response. Oh, I don't want to be shamed. Um, but there, <laughs> there is this kind of thing, I think, in the New Zealand psyche that 
they're just as uncomfortable expressing a generally not not everybody obviously it's big generalizations but there's there's a well-worn tradition of and especially probably for men i think that's probably the case of just pushing that sort of down and not allowing ourselves to become too transparent or vulnerable so um but yes when we engage with the the scriptural text itself we find that that's not actually the that's not what conversations with god look like or yeah um just i've mentioned my father um he was he and i think this is part of this conversation he had um come to know god um and made that decision that he would turn towards god or realized that god within him was calling him you know and he so when dad got dad my father got depressed and his depression lasted three months from an external perspective so all we saw externally was this man who started to get down and he stopped sleeping and all these things but the fact is he was 64 a kiwi bloke and he had spent he would have been probably depressed for a long time and it was the 90s and we were in the in the in our faith tradition was very much around um i was i was saying dad you know you need to get some prayer and and look at this bible verse and and um and but i wasn't using the language of of psychological wellness you know i wasn't saying you should go to counseling or you know and dad because he was our 64 year old kiwi male he hadn't been talking about any of these things and he wouldn't have had the language to talk about them anyway, even if he did. And so he had, was an example of someone who had stuffed deep down his emotions. And anxiety for him would have been the main one. And, you know, he used to get physical pains in his stomach. And he went to the doctor and found out that there was no reason for his physical pain, which was hugely distra- distressing for him because he wanted the doctor to tell him that the reason for his pain was because he had an ulcer or something, you know. But there was no ulcer. There was nothing. There was no physical thing. It was emotion. It was pure, this pure emotion that had never been allowed to, to have its voice. And so when he got depressed, he had nowhere to put that and this 64 years of stuffing and burying enabled him to make the decision that life was too hard for him to live as someone who had come to know God. So my big thing was I was trusting God because of what the Bible said, because of what I was praying, because of what I believed, which was all good stuff and amazing stuff, but it didn't work. (laughs) And so I went, okay, put it down, you know. And then I went into a space of... um, Personal, um, personal work and reading and understanding that we'd missed something. There was a missing link. We were treating the emotions like they were secondary, like they, the, the, the Holy Spirit could just come and heal a person of their painful emotions. Whereas these painful emotions were telling a story about a man, about a man's life and what good. Telling, also telling good things and bad things, but not a voice. The voice wasn't given. And so I think that's where I'm very strong on. Find a voice. Be honest. Talk to God about it. Talk to someone about it. Let it become about a part of a prayer life. Let it become part of healing, but don't ignore it. You know. Right, yeah. It's, um, gee, starting to talk about the Bible can take us some to some interesting places, can't it? Suddenly what we find is even just a simple question is, is um, unpacking a sense of what 
the human journey is about, uh, which is hopefully what engagement in Scripture in some kind of way does for us. Um, and if any of this conversation, uh, for whatever reason, brings up something for you that you would actually like to talk to someone about, then obviously um, please do that because uh, we're talking about tough stuff. Um, okay, so a, a related kind of question, but if you think about the transformational journey of your life, you think about you as a as a transforming person. Um, what role has can you see that the Bible, in some kind of way, has played in that transformation for you over time? I think that the Bible has its own story of evolution. We talked last week, or two weeks ago, about um, violence and about primitive culture. But then we also talked about all these thousands of years later, are we so much more advanced? Because violence is still very much part of our society and a part of our culture. But we just it just looks different. We, weren't, we don't go out there with an axe and smash, take someone's head off. We just do something equally as dangerous but not quite so obvious. Um, so I think, the, from my understanding, the Bible itself is almost on an evolutionary journey. So you, you kind of go from the beginning right through to the um, through to Old Testament, through to Christ. And I think Jesus has offered us this transformational way of being. Um, but why? I often ask, why did Jesus arrive at that point of history right then, that time? And I can, and I don't know, but I can ha- have a guess that it's because humanity was ready to hear the message, perhaps. And so I go. So for me, my transformation has been even in my own journey right through to my to sixty. You know, um, I went from a very literal. I went actually went from a very imaginative um, uh, young child who didn't have any Christian influence at all, who met God in the first book, the big book of creation. That was my first experience, and my imagination was wild. And I believe God God was very much a part of that. And so I, then I became, I started going to church and I was given words for God, language, which was different to the language that I discovered out there in creation. So the big book was speaking very clearly with no words and the little book started to speak with defined words. But that was okay because it's like when we raise our children um, we give them a few rules. We don't don't cross the street without holding our hand. Um, don't climb on that step ladder because if you do, you'll fall off and hurt yourself. It's all these don'ts, 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 and it's like our faith development too. So the Bible was able to be literal and rule based in those early formational years. But as I started to grow up and ask questions about myself, my identity, and then I had this crisis in my um, well, actually, even before that, I hit the church in my twenties. And was told as a young woman, um, you know, it's awesome that you've got this. You've been raised as a young leader. But now that you're married, you need to take a seat and that your husband can lead you. And I was like, there was, there was major, there were major issues <laughs> in our home. <laughs> you know, I was encouraged based on the Bible, what the text said, um, why submit. But I hadn't been raised in a Christian home where I wasn't told to submit. But I thought I'd better believe what the Bible says because what will happen to me if I don't? So there, that come, that 
that leads into what was my image of God. My image of God was one who I needed to be careful just in case something might happen that was scary. So I better tow the party line. But I never towed the party line because internally I was never a person who could possibly tow the party line. Um, so that, that played itself out. Everything that we believe about God and what we believe about the text must be able to be played out in the way we live our lives. If it doesn't, if it can't play itself out, which means it's messy in the middle and we have to ask questions, we could say, okay, look, I'm just going to forget about the questions and I'm just going to um, tow the party line. Um, or like you, Frosty just said, or we just get out altogether. But getting out was never an option for me. Towing the party line was never an option for me either. I had to find myself in the messy middle. So I went through the twen my 20s, had babies, got busy having kids, and didn't worry so much about what was going on out there because I was enjoying this. But in my mid-30s, I felt like I came up out of a nappy bucket, like an up periscope of a, of a submarine. Went up, looked around, did a 360. What's going on around here? Where have I been? I've been kind of in the laundry with a nappy bucket. But this isn't where I'm at now. And that's when my dad died. And so that was like, faith crisis. So the, the text, which had been able to sustain me, sort of, but I'd begun to ask questions, but I was too busy enjoying my kids to worry about it. The text, I started wrestling, and then I had a crisis, and I believe that it's crisis, which none of us want to go through, but there, it's just part of life. You know, it just is. It invited me to ask questions. And so then I was in this, once again, I'm, I'm on my own evolutionary trajectory, and the text alongside me was, I think, in its own evolutionary trajectory as well. And I think if I, I'm wondering if when I get to the end of my life, I look back and go, we were kind of journeying together. The, the, the journey of the text was that it was evolving in, in the way it was speaking to humanity. And I was, in my journey, evolving in the way I believed about God and myself. Um, yeah, and so I think this, this transformational process has happened for me, side by side. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, there's this beautiful saying that I think it's either a book that's called this or it might be Eugene Peterson or Brueggemann that says the text is in travail. It's almost in its own sense of Brueggemann. It's like its own travail. It's almost travailing against itself. It's trying to evolve and become and be transformed so that we can, humanity, humanity wherever we are in our own evolutionary process, is catching up with that. You know, and um, and it's not over. And what else is coming? And what because it's because the tech because the because God is creative, and we are creative, and we are co-creator. We are co-creators. Continue to create with the with our lives. Yeah. Yeah, that is good. I do remember the diagram. I saw the diagram of the um, of 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 God. It was like an umbrella. And then under God was the man, and then the man created a bit of an umbrella, and then under the man could be the wife. There was another little umbrella and the children kind of under there, there as well. And then there were fiery darts coming down from the top, you see? And if you're under the umbrella, then you're protected from the fiery darts. And so the, uh, the man was under God, and so he was protected from the fiery darts. And then the... Was that? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Oh, right. There you go. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. Right. Yeah, an amazing. It's an, 
it's an amazing image of a way of taking the text. Um, who was and where was a person who wasn't married? Where was a woman who was single? What umbrella was she under? Well, <laughs> there were all sorts of complicated ways, but yes, usually. So a woman was often under their father, but then that started to get sort of awkward. The, the older woman got, or and so yeah, often, or, or if the father then passed away, often it was the pastor, which is maybe the creepiest theology I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, and we wonder why um, we wonder why pastors so often seem to run into trouble. <clears throat> um, <laughs> well, thankfully, we've moved on a little from most of us, some of us, although it's still a big issue in plenty of parts of the world. Um, covering, yes, the covering doctrine, yes. And, and fire a dart proof as well. It's very effective. Um, all right, I think you've already started to maybe answer this question, but I'll ask it anyway and see if you have something else you want to add to it. But you've you've talked a little bit about your own evolving faith um, and your evolving relationship with the text. Um, how has how has that sort of changing theology gone hand in hand with a changing view of, of what Scripture is and what it's doing for you? I think I've moved away from the having to think that the Bible is a literal book um, to looking for the metaphor in all of it, in most of it actually, and the, and the bits that don't make any sense to me, I don't care about so much. I, I don't have to worry about them. You know, I'm, I, haven't, I haven't got this sense that I now need to go and figure out why these scriptures are so difficult to understand because I think because I've, I've learned that as I grow and change, things just become clearer you know I don't have to worry about it happening quickly I don't have to know everything now because underneath me and and anchoring me is a sense of uh, a, a benevolent God and so where my post that experience with dad my view, my image of God was invited to change who is God God is for me or God is not for me God is love or God is not love God is kind or God is uh, punitive selective um, and I chose to fall into the God of love and you know the old for those of you that are a little have been around a while the old Andre Crouch song says you know if heaven wasn't what it was said it would be even God's plan to live eternally it's been worth having the Lord in my life you know it's actually a really good idea to when we fall into, I said to somebody this morning, um, we don't have to really worry about too much if we, if God is a God of love, and then we can just unpack what it means to love, and then we can love. Actually, that's probably all we've been asked to do, which has led me leads me to um, the scriptures that I fall into are the gospels, because I think that. Christianity is a Christ-centered faith, and so that's Christ is our center. Christ is our, and I'm when I say Christ, I'm not just talking about Jesus of Nazareth, because like we've heard a number of times, Christ is not Jesus' last name. I'm talking about this, the cosmic Christ, the Christ in all, 
that Paul talks about. Now, I've had a difficulty with Paul because I didn't, and, and my difficulty with Paul, with Paul came along my, the trajectory of my evolutionary change. So when I, was think, when I was told to take a seat and submit, then I had a major issue with Paul because he said it. So whatever he said, couldn't, I wasn't interested in. That didn't make sense to me, which was very immature, you know, but, that, but I was naive, and that's good. And so when we can own our naivety and our immaturity, then we can just continue to grow and change and evolve and be open to transformation. So now I'm beginning to, um, I'm inter- now I'm interested in Paul because I can't believe for one minute if Paul knew the, cos- the cosmic Christ who he met on the road, because it wasn't Jesus of Nazareth he met on the road, it was the cosmic Christ, God in all things. If Paul met the cosmic Christ, then Paul, Paul had his own understanding of who God was, God of love. So I can't believe that God, that Paul can possibly mean that women are some way lesser than men or needing of something because that's not who God is. So everything that I read now in the scripture, I trail back. Who is God? What is my image of God? Is God kind? Is God, is God benevolent? I believe so. I'm safe. Do I have to be worried about falling off some kind of slippery, uh, the edge or go down some slippery slope? No, I don't. I'm not worried about that anymore. I would have been once when I was younger and naive and needing the rules. So, um, so I'm much, much safer than I've ever been and I potentially know less than I've ever known. <laughs> Do you know? And I'm okay with that because knowing isn't about what we know about the text. It's knowing what we know about the, the one who knows, being in relationships. So, um, did I ask that question? I was thinking about that um, sense of your view of God. Um, not sure if many of you have ever read. Uh, there's a, well, there's been an author in the US called Rachel Held Evans, who is a, um, an amazing writer and thinker who who had been writing for a number of years, um, who passed away just last week, um, only 37, 38, something like that, um, but had really uh, made a staunch stand in all of her writing and work uh, in kind of evangelical Christianity in the US against sort of patriarchy and the, the, the very harsh views of God and, the, and, and, and still many parts of the US where women are uh, subjugated within the church and uh, among many other things that she had to say and she sort of tragically and, and you know, got ill and died quite, very quickly. Uh, and watching people online react to her passing, some and there was a lot of outpouring of, of grief because she has you know many people who read her and engage her work, and then also lots of sort of fundamentalists who, for whom this was their chance to sort of grieve in inverted commas, but always also to point out her flaws. And some of that was much worse than others. Some of it was well, now she's going to meet her maker, and hopefully she repented before she died, kind of stuff. Um, but it was interesting. Some of the, I mean, that was the more horrendous end of it but there were people some people who were trying to be very thoughtful theologically minded folk uh, and said one of the big problems with her, with her theology was or with and, with and with the kind of faith that she expressed was that she was and they were meaning this you know they genuinely would, were saying this was their argument she was kinder than God is um, and so the problem with her theology was it was too kind Um because <laughs> she included the wrong sorts of people, you know. She she pushed up against attitudes towards LGBT community and, and other kind of stuff that, that certainly gets people a bit riled up. 
Um, <laughs> and, and that's an interesting reflection on how what we believe about God shapes so much of how we, how we engage in um, everything else about our faith and our spirituality. And, and then Scripture becomes, it's this interesting interplay, isn't it? Because our view of God is formed partly by the text, but actually our experience of life and our experience of God helps us to reinterpret the text and so we go through this kind of iterative process of change over time. She also said, um, I was reading one of her posts and she said something about being Christian. Not She didn't say being a Christian. And it was a simple little thing. And it was just a, a little post. And I read it and I was like, you know, one of those little epiphany moments. I'm like, oh, why didn't I see this before? She talks about being Christian, which turns being Christian into a into a uh, verb to do it. You are one. You be Christ, be Christian. Don't be a Christian, which takes it into helps us with tribalism. I'm a Buddhist. I'm a Christian. I'm a Hindu. I'm a Catholic. I am. If, so, which I pull. I went. Whoa, pull back, Linda. If you want to change your language around that one, and you and you want to say I am Christian. Then you better be it, you know, because you're representing God. When you or when you say you are being Christian, you are actually representing being a Christian. Instantly put me, puts me into more of a, a group, you know. And so that was a, just something that she said. And I actually haven't read anything of hers, but her stuff's all over Facebook because she's, yeah. So yeah, that that was a beautiful challenge for me. Rachel Held Evans. Mm. She actually, uh, her, the last book she published was on the Bible. It's called Inspired, um, which is a, a great book on on Scripture and how to engage it. Yeah. Um, right. Is there anything you've got to say that I haven't asked you already? Um, I I did have a question here of are there times when Scripture has not been helpful, uh, and how do you move through that? I think you've talked about that a, a bit already. Is there anything you wanted to add to that? No, just just that. Um, I think for me, returning to my, and this maybe this is something that we do as a part of our evolutionary process. I feel like allowing myself to remember what it was like when I first met, and this is okay for me because I'd met had an experience with God as a child. Not everybody here may have, but I know for me allowing myself to do this loop back to what I used to experience when I first had an awakening or the sense of the presence of something outside of it, inside myself and outside of myself um, that that was the that was the closest I felt to God as a child you know um when I was able to lay on the back lawn and look at the sky and the stars and believe that the stars were holes to heaven and the light from the stars was the light from heaven shining through and to believe with all of my heart that that skyscape was pinpricks with the light coming through from heaven. Now I don't now believe that heaven is up above the stars and, and you know I don't even know what I think about that. But... That was a simplistic way of seeing God go, whoa, that's beautiful. That's amazing. So I, I suppose in terms of the text, I allow myself now to go um, to find the 
the metaphor and the beauty in there and not worry so much about the stuff that, I, like I said, don't understand because I don't have to I don't have to be worried. I think that's what where I've come to. I'm not anxious about I'm not anxious about God at all. I trust and I hope that if I say anything or that if anybody anybody in this room, anybody in this community is worried about me. My mom, I think my mum's a little bit worried about me <laughs> because I led her to God in a very fundamental way. You know, my sister baptised mum in the bath because she had to be baptised, you know, and um, dad had to get baptised or something was going to happen and Greg baptised him in his bar pool. Um, but, but I led my, my mother to Christ in a very fundamental way and now she's watching me <laughs> and she's like, oh, Linda, you know, what do you? What do you believe about that? And, and she's just watching me and we're, and I'm trying so carefully <laughs> to talk to her in such a way that I'm introducing or talking about God in a way that's beautifully kind and, and she's she's very open. But um, I realise that I've, I've changed so much. But I, I want, I would hope that if people thought I was saying something or going somewhere that was a bit strange, that you or they would say so. Because I think that's the beauty of community and being with other people. That we go, what do you mean by that? Oh my goodness! <laughs> did you just say that, Linda? Oh, oh my! Did I just say that? Oh, okay, maybe I did. What did I mean by that? You know, we're very quick to um, worry that someone just said something, and we go, oh, I think they just said that, and then they run off and they don't come back and say, did you just say that? Because we might have, but we may have meant something else, and we need all of us need to be able to converse around the things that we don't understand about what each other say. That's community. That's conversation. That's really deep, wise dialogue, not going, and but the church isn't good at that. We go, they just said that. I better find another church. <laughs> oh, my goodness, they thought that. You know, but they didn't talk about it. You know, so that, I think that's really challenging for us, particularly as we find ourselves in a community that has changed and has evolved. But I hope that we're... I know, I'm safe, I feel pretty safe, but I hope that we all feel safe, but we can only feel safe if we know each other and we'll talk about these things well together and communicate honestly. It's great. Yeah, this is not an intervention. Um, we've brought you here to share a few thoughts and then talk about some of your heresies. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's all, it's all Greg's fault. It's all, yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> Sorry, my fiery darts did not get through. Um, it's really, you know, our philosopher Ricoeur talks about this idea of second naivety, which I think we've we've brought up a number of times over the years. But it is this, I think, quite wonderful idea. It's similar to, to Brueggemann's reorientation that you see in the Psalms where... I think you do, you go on this, well, I, this is my journey and perhaps a repeated journey of some kind of, of this kind of, oh, that's how it is, cool, you accept everything that you're told and then a, a real kind of unpacking of it and saying, oh, I don't know what I think about that anymore or it's not working or a crisis emerges or something happens and you realise I can't trust this, I didn't, it doesn't work the way that I thought it did uh, and, and yet on the other side of that and you kind of, t the path of transformation and of maturity is, I think, having to go through that honestly and authentically. Um, but the hope is that the kind of simplicity on the other side of complexity is another way of, of talking about it, that you come again to this place of being able to say, well, actually, if I'm not, if I no longer have to be 
stressed out and anxious about getting all of this right, otherwise God's going to be deeply disappointed in me, then the kind of angst of the deconstruction can start to melt a little bit and we're able to actually come to a place of being like, well, actually, it's okay. This is, this is the journey. Let's, let's sink into it and allow ourselves to engage with it. And if Paul's irritating sometimes when you read the New Testament, then it's an opportunity to just reflect and to think about where Paul is coming from and what kind of person he is. And um, rather than having to rage against Paul and, and, and tear him down, which is, you know, you can find plenty of places online who will do that, I'm sure, or plenty of people who are very upset with him and maybe for good reason. But, um, but if we're not obsessed with always having to get it all correct for fear that God will um, kick us out, then, then it opens up a much more beautiful space to actually be able to have community with one another in our transforming journey. Um, I think what we may as well do is we may as well just flow through into some questions and then we'll go through a little bit of a, a practice that Linda's going to take us through. Questions or, or comments, uh, reflecting really on, on tonight in our conversation or if you've been around so far in formation this year, are there things that come to mind for you in terms of what we've been talking about? Um, or maybe some feedback or comments or thoughts that arise for you in this conversation? Has anyone got anything? So do you think that the the whole way, well, I was brought up in the church too, the whole belief that we had was really pretty central and knowing what we believe, partly because of the time then was also that we really thought the Bible was a um, like the, a constitution and not a collection, like a library. And so we took it all very literally. So... Yeah, I just sort of your comment on that and how how it's changed and because I don't take it like that now, but I don't know exactly why I don't. But yeah, probably because I come to. Yeah. <laughs> Did you want to say? I mean, um, yeah, I think. Gosh, there's a lot of ways we could talk about that. I suppose um, it certainly does depend what stream of the church you find yourself in. So there are there are certainly streams of the church who have always been talking about scripture in this kind of way or have been for a long time. But there are also streams of the, of the church who um, took a much more literal, um, constitutional kind of view. And I think um, that's the kind of stream that I grew up in. And I think that's been the experience certainly for a lot of people in our community. Um, but it was interesting here. Uh, Ken was here um, a couple of months back. He had a lot of dad jokes, um, but also he um, he talked about how, oh, we were, I think we were talking about myths and, and, and the flood and Genesis, and he's like, I was never in a church where we talked about that as if those stories were literal. That's never been an issue for me. Um, so I think it does depend a little bit on, on the stream or of church that you found yourself in as to the kind of approach that was taken to the text. And so this is not like suddenly a group of people in Kingsland have decided to, to see the, the Bible differently. <laughs> but I think... And what happened in some of those channels is they were very tightly kind of governed or you found yourselves in, in, in a very swift flowing stream that, that the banks were quite high um, and exposure to other voices, exposure to other traditions, exposure to other ways of thinking were perhaps hard to come by and seen as kind of dangerous. 
um, for whatever reason. I certainly like. I grew up in in Pentecostal churches. Many of you know, as I regale you with my stories. Uh, and and really, that movement was birthed. A part of it was this anti-academic, you know, anti-intellectual kind of movement. Ah, oh, the intellectuals and the academics—they're just they're, they're dry and lifeless, and they're missing the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, what's needed is the power of the Holy Spirit, and forget all of that other stuff. And so, maybe there's a there's a a baby with the bathwater situation going on there. You know, there was a the desire to not be trapped by tradition and by sort of elite academic folk. Uh, and instead, for this kind of dynamic spirituality to explode out on the, on the margins, which it did, uh, and yet um, there was certain challenges that arose within those kinds of churches. I think because of that, real strengths of people's kind of experience of God, and real challenges because um, there wasn't necessarily an openness to to thinking um, deeply. One of the scholars who I read, I think Walter Hollenweger who um, dedicated his book uh, to um, to my Pentecostal friends who taught me to love the Bible and to my Presbyterian friends who taught me how to read it. I think that's how the dedication goes, something like, along those lines. But um, he, he recognised in some sense that the, the different streams had different things to to offer him and, and maybe that's one way of... Of thinking about it, and and what's happened in some communities and in a community like this is, I think we've allowed ourselves to to broaden the the banks a little bit and allow some some voices that have always been present with us into the conversation. There's a great book by Brian McLaren, um, where he unpacks all of the stream, all the different faith um, traditions. What's it? Is it? It's not everything must change. It's a generous orthodoxy. It's a really good book because he he's is very generous, and he writes a chapter on just different all the different um, faith traditions in the Protestant Church, probably. Yeah, but he unpacks them in such a way that he invites the beauty from each into the space, and um, which I found really helpful. Um, and I think perhaps it underpins in some ways what we would love to think that we could invite here as well, you know, a sense of um, we all come from different traditions and every tradition has something beautiful and we need to be able to see that in each other and invite that in and create spaces for that to, to be able to be here. So that's a great book actually. It's called A Generous Orthodoxy. Is that right? Yeah. There's another one, yeah. Just a comment. I was listening to a Jewish scholar and a Protestant uh, talk together. And he made this striking comment, a simple little comment. He said, you Protestants read the Bible. I suppose you must include the Catholics or those who come from the Western tradition. He said, you guys read the Bible to figure out what you believe. We never read the Bible for that. We read it to discover meaning. It was always about meaning for us, about who we were and why God was with us and the hiringa tapu, the sacred journey of faith in the human soul. Um, I wonder, and I, and I would crave your thoughts on this, a great panel. Did 
did the Enlightenment um, move us into such um, a rational frame of mind that we came up with words, we invented words to describe the Bible like inerrant and infallible, which are recent words adopted, I think, to make the Bible say something it was never meant to say. And they're, they're, rel they're relatively new terms, but I, um, I wonder if that pushed us further away from meaning and into what this Jewish guy said, the the lust for theological certainty, um, the, the need to be accurate and right, um, which he said, in fact, didn't ever became, become that. It just became a contest between those who weren't right and those who thought they were. So we used those terms, inerrant and fallible, to decide who was right and wrong, and we became tribal and lost our sense of meaning. You know, what does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? You know? I'd like to ask a question. Do you think words are fallible and inerrant? Words that are used to describe the Bible are unhelpful. Yes. <laughs> are they unhelpful words? Yes. Um, so I think from, from my reading of of history, um, this is roughly what I think happened, which is that in the Enlightenment, so 16th century onwards, you, uh, you, you start to get the emergence of, of a different way of understanding reality, the rise of empiricism, of, of science, a scientific method, or more modern scientific method. Um, this kind of stuff begins to emerge, in, especially in the West. And Christians respond to this in all sorts of different ways. Um, one of the ways to do so is to try and resist that tidal wave of um, science and knowledge and and stuff because they felt it was threatening to to theology because you know um, if you've used God to explain all the things you can't understand and use the Bible to explain all the things you can't understand and then people start explaining things through other means like, oh, it doesn't rain because God's upset, it rains because the water evaporates and then collects and then comes back down again. Um, then that's a very threatening thing in some kind of way. Um, and interestingly, I think what happened is one of the reactions amongst certain streams of the Protestant church, I think, in particular, was to try and react against it, but essentially in their reaction against it uh, became just a different version of that desire for certainty, you know. So to resist that coming wave of scientific certainty with their own kind of certainty, which was to say, no, it's the Bible, and the Bible is the inerrant infallible word of God, so don't you be throwing into question its historical validity, because, uh, you know, historians were now starting to dig up suspicious uh, facts that might challenge some of the accounts that you find in, in the scripture. So what do you do with that? Well, you double down and you say, no, this is the inerrant word of God, which means there is no error. It's the infallible word of God, which means, you know, it's all sort of divinely almost composed, certainly in certain ways of understanding that term. And that kind of rigidity, ironically, as this desire for, for certainty in the face of serious doubt and scepticism that was emerging in the West. Um, 
did not create some kind of solidified, unified Christian force, did it? It's just splintered the church into thousands of groups and denominations because you're absolutely, you know, your, your observation is right that when you become committed to certainty and to knowing all of the things exactly as they should be known, inevitably you find you disagree with each other about aspects of that because that's not what the Bible is. And so when you try and turn it into that, you end up, finding that you come to different conclusions to one another. And so then you have to um, divorce each other uh, and and form another group. And so, you know, you've got the sort of the reformed church and then you've got the most reformed church and then you've got, you know, and it kind of spirals out from there. Um, so, yes, that's that's my reflection on that question. So they become problematic and they're not in the text. They're, they're not words of the ancient tradition. Um, they are words that we bring, have brought to the, and, and um, rather than letting the scriptural tradition tell us what kind of tradition it is, um, we've tried to say, this is what it is. Uh, this is the kind of authority it should have and impose that actually on the text and turn it into something it's not. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's, I think, that's a big, Problem for us, and and in our because we're quite dualistic in our modern Western mind, I think we find it again difficult to say, well, okay, then if it's not an inerrant and infallible, then it's a big waste of time, and I shouldn't even bother with it. Um, and and instead of choosing those two, uh, what we're trying to talk about here, I think, is well, what's what's a third way here? Because and it's to do with meaning, absolutely, it's to do with meaning, because the same fundamental human questions that we have now are being addressed in this tradition, in this sacred journey. Yeah. Can I just follow up a question on that? What about um, the word inspired? <laughs> ah, inspired, yes. So, Paul or the writer at least of, the, of, of this letter to Timothy uh, says that all scripture is theonoustos, is the Greek term that he uses, theonoustos. Uh, made a bit complicated by the fact that it's not a word. So Paul kind of makes up a word. And that's very unhelpful to us because often the way we figure out what a word means is by looking at all the other ways that it's, that it's used within that time. Uh, and that's not that's not a word. So, um, theo comes from the word is related to the word theos, which is the word for God. Uh, Nustos seems related to the word pneuma, which is the word spirit in Greek, uh, but also the word breath. So, some translations will say all scripture is God breathed. Um, some will say all scripture is inspired by God. Um, spiration is to, is to also do with kind of um, breath and so on. So um, what's developed out of that particular word is a whole way of thinking about what was happening in the text. And I guess I have no problem personally with the word inspiration. I think it's, it's what do we mean by the word inspiration? What do we mean by the idea that God is somehow present in this text? And um, I mean, if you, you know, if you go into the theological situation, you'll find different versions of people trying to define what they mean by inspiration. So some will talk about verbal plenary ins inspiration, 
which is essentially that each author of the text sat there sort of almost in a trance and just directly downloaded whatever God was saying and wrote it down, you know, um, word for word. And that, that connects very well to inerrancy then because every word is, is perfect and, and should be there. doesn't account very well for the sort of the personalities and, the, and, 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 you know, the fact that some writers use bad grammar and others use good grammar um, in, the, in the original text. That, that, all, that all disappears in our translation too, you know, because the translators translate it all in good English. But in the, in the Greek, for example, in the New Testament, you can see, you know, um, Luke's got really good grammar. But then when he sort of quotes Peter, he suddenly changes to bad grammar because obviously, I don't know whether that's a dig at Peter or whether he's just trying to actually reflect him. Um, <laughs> so, you know, um, we, we miss those kind of layers, I think, in our English version. And so, um, you know, at, at times Paul in his own letter says, this is I now, not the Lord. Um, so, you know, what do you do with that if you've got an inerrant, inspired, uh, infallible text? And, and Paul is specifically saying, this is not God speaking. You're like, but well, sure it is, because it's in the Bible. Paul didn't know that he really was God speaking. Either we do that, or, or we acknowledge that there are, there are personalities present in this text. There, are, there is all sorts of stuff present there. And so I am quite comfortable with the fact that um, God can be breathing in that story, um, that God is to be found there. But... But that doesn't mean that um, it, it, it's word for word um, perfectly dropped from, from the heavens, you know? Um, again, I think that's that third way to be found there. Right. Yeah, so you, you hear a prophetic word, you don't. And what you'll often find is that, that even a prophetic word of some kind, depending on what we mean by that, will come through the personality of the person bringing it with, with their peculiarities and, and, and particular ways of, of, of seeing. And that's certainly present in the text, absolutely. Yeah. But th- for me, that makes it like beautiful because it is this, it, rather than this kind of... Um, this almost personless text that, you know, you can sort of flip to any part of the book anywhere, just pick out a thing and it's all of it's just the same as everything else. It's just in a different place in the book. In the book. Almost robs it of its beautiful tapestry uh, of the story that's unfolding within it, of the evolving sense of, of what to believe about God that's present within it. Oh, the Greek word. Or the Theonustos? Nu, Nustos. Nustos with a P at the beginning. It's the silent P. It's tricky like that. Penustos. Yes. Yes. So Numa, P N E U M A, is the Greek word for, for spirit or for breath or wind. Um, you know, Jesus is making a play, for example, on that when he says in John 3 with Nicodemus. The spirit blows wherever it pleases, like the wind that comes and goes, and so it is with you know. So there's there's this there's this wordplay going on with Numa. Um, so depending on the context, it'll be translated as breath or as spirit um, or wind. Same with the Hebrew word is ruach; they're, they're equivalent to each other. Yeah. Cool. Anything else? Oh, go on then, Callum. One more. So then, so then what, what makes the Bible 
a collection of books, a library, any different to any other collection of books? I love that you're you answering questions, Steve. You love that you're answering questions? No, you can take that. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've got I'm learning. No, I'm learning here. Yeah, Oh, man. Um, oh, no worries. What makes the Bible different from any other book or collection of, collection of books, historical works? Well, that's a big sigh, wasn't it? Gosh. Yeah. I think as a Christian, I'm go- oh, sorry, yes, as someone being Christian, <clears throat> Thank you. Then, then Jesus is is important for me, and so the the scripture is the story that ultimately enfolds me into this Jesus story in a particular kind of way that no other particular work or set of collection of writings does. And so, um, it seems to me that. The kind of God I see emerging in the Jesus story is the kind of God I'm very interested in. And and Jesus emerges within a tradition. And so to understand Jesus well, this, this is just my, my personal sense of, of why Scripture matters. Like I could look at just, the, just before, before Jesus enters the picture, you know, I guess a, a Jewish person would, would take the text prior to Jesus aren't necessarily going to... Um, Take the Jesus. There's all sorts of things you could say about that text and insights that emerge that are that are genuinely helpful. Things that are like the Psalms we were talking about before. There are there are ways of understanding the human condition and the human experience and insights about God and about the divine reality that are there. But for me, ultimately, I'm I'm drawn to the way in which this unfolds into the story of Jesus because Jesus so profoundly shapes my view of God. So. Um, the way in which Jesus talks about God and the way in which that then spins out from the Jesus story into this cosmic Christ that Linda was speaking about before. For me, that's that's the thing that brings me to this particular set of or collection of texts. And I'm not saying that there isn't insight and wisdom found in other texts and other sacred texts and other traditions. Uh, there isn't truth and insight and beauty found within those texts, which there is. Um, but for me, I guess the Jesus story is what makes it unique for me. I just think it's it's my book. You know, I'm like, it's my tradition. It's my chosen faith tradition. And it's the book, beautiful book that goes with that. You know, it's part of the package. So, um, But it also I think that there are other books too, that would be as equally beautiful to the people whose faith tradition they come from. Once upon a time, I would have gone, that is the only book. But I think it's the book that I've fallen into, even though I don't fully understand portions of it, but absolutely because it's the, the Christ story. Um, I think Marcus Borg talks about this in his book, um, Convictions. So, which is another great book to write down if you're bold and brave enough to read it. Um, but yeah, he talks about 
amidst all of the things that that don't seem the amidst all of the things about the Bible, the way things have been interpreted, that we may not that may be a problem. Um, I choose this book because it's my book. You know, it's the book of the tradition that I belong to. Um, we've been talking a little bit about this third way tonight, which I think is I think is a way of wisdom. So we have these extremes. We have this over here, this left and this right, and these fundamental ways and these very liberal ways. But I think in the middle is this uh, third way, which is the way of wisdom. And I like to think of that as being um, these two poles that press together like they put pressure on themselves and up from the midst of the pressure point comes something else that's a way of wisdom, which is beautiful. Which Jesus was a wisdom teacher. Um, the mystics were wisdom teachers. I spend a long time, years, reading Proverbs every month. 31 Proverbs, one, you know, um, in that way. And then I stopped. And I remember a few years later thinking, gosh, I haven't read the Proverbs, Proverbs for such a long time. And I remember when I was reading Proverbs for years in that way, my prayer was always for wisdom. It's all I ever asked for. And then I stopped praying reading Proverbs, and I actually stopped asking for wisdom. And I went, oh my goodness, have I become unwise or what's going on? And I, I think without even, it's not a boast, but I think what happened was, and this is about transformation, you know, we we um, pin ourselves, we have something going on in our lives that is a real thing, and then we work at it and we work at it and we work at it, and then maybe a few years later we're involved in a situation where we realise the very thing that we used to struggle with just isn't a struggle anymore. It's like transformation, you know, we just change. We don't know when we change. We don't know how we change. We just know that we change if we stay on the path. And I think that what we're being, being invited to change into is people of wisdom, which is Jesus was a wisdom teacher. You know, he just said stuff that was like, what did he just say? Pure wisdom, pure spirit, breathed, inspired stuff, you know. And I think that's our invitation. Um, I have one more thing that I'd like to just say that um, there is something that does trouble me, and um, maybe you can help me with this. I, I Because we're a community of uh, diverse ages and stages, I do sometimes get a bit nervous about how we communicate with our young people because I'm also aware that young people must go through certain stages of development that require a certain way of thinking, you know. And so I, I go, oh, God, that my, my only concern would be that we don't – I'm not leading someone astray is a big thing to say, but I want to know that we are communicating the, what we – believe or what we think we know in such a way with young people that they don't freak out and go well what do I believe now you know because I think that's and that's I think that's wisdom too so um I'm aware of that in our in our community and how we stay close to our young people and how we open up the space for conversation and we may not be giving them the four spiritual laws or whatever, but we're communicating with them in such a way that they're safe and that they're anchored. So I don't know if you th if any of you think about that in terms of the next generation. I had a conversation today with our, um, our, our kids and um, Jordan Peterson came up and I don't know if any of you know Jordan Peterson. and I don't know much about him, but one of my son-in-laws, so I'll, I'll let him remain nameless, he said, look, a lot of young people, 
are looking for some certainty. And I'm like, whoa. And he says, so if someone like Jordan Peterson comes along and he says, here's 12 steps, here's 12 rules, just do this. And I'm like, oh, good, thank you. Now I don't have to think for myself. You just tell me what to do. And I'm like, wow, is that a thing? Gosh, that's a thing. That's a thinking of a, partic- of a younger generation. And I go, well, I don't particularly think that that's helpful to tell a kid 12 steps to do something. I want, but I want to pull them into conversation around these ways of thinking that can help them live wise lives and make wise decisions. So I think it's a challenge and something that I, that I deeply think and pray about because I, my heart is for the next generation. You know, so I don't know if you've got any comments about that. <laughs> but yeah. I sort of feel like you answered it when you said about um, being a Christian and being Christian. Because I think the way I was brought up, it was sort of like, okay, you say the prayer and you're in. And really, there was sort of discipleship, but it's a little bit airy-fairy. Whereas I feel like when you're saying being Christian, it's about loving and accepting and respecting. And it's not just a one thing I've said once and forget about, you know. So I sort of feel like, yeah, but I agree with you, I think. People are looking for certainty. Anyone else? Mm. Uh, The the question of what's different between the Bible and another uh, ensemble of history books, I think um, when you look at different civilizations and you look at at some, uh, you know, the, the Quran is it, and then you have other ones, the Buddhists, and then you look at um, really the civilizations that have had the Bible as probably the basis. And and you've got to perhaps you, there's an argument there. You could say, well, they're the ones that have actually benefited the most. They've, they've been the ones that have been in the front, liberating women, liberating slavery, all this sort of thing, because you you go to the Middle East <coughs> and, and Southeast Asia and you almost find the antithesis. These things don't exist in the, in, in the West, but you, you've got to say that Europe and the West and New Zealand's heritage, you know, we've benefited phenomenally from from the the, the, the influence of Christ in, and in, in New Zealand here, but the, the issue is that we now have a we have a couple of generations that have sort of just got used to it and they've turned their back on it and now they're they're wondering why stuff's turning to custard, you know. And so you've my my feeling is that even on that basis alone, the Bible would warrant a pretty good investigation. Why why is it? I, mean, I guess the other reason, <clears throat> the other thought I've got is there seems to be something. Um, life-giving from the Bible. You know, people just read it. And God, the Rema, it's the Rema, that God speaks to them somehow or other, and it will be different for every person. But it's, um, yeah, I guess that's why I would say it's got a totally different dimension. Um, and obviously it's, it's sort of hit the nail with millions of people. <clears throat> All right. Well, um, thanks for that. And I think, you know, the, the, 
the strength of a community is to be able to continue talking about this kind of stuff together with one another, to be reflecting back and even thinking about, you know, the, the young people and the next generation, um, to be having that conversation with young people uh, and with one another about what it looks like to be formed together, um, even at all of our different stages of faith development and, and our journeys. So it's a good conversation. So Linda's going to take us through a, a practice to finish and then we're going to have dinner together. So thank you, Linda. Just in terms of scripture, um, and I'm sure most of you know this practice, and, this, and we'll just take five minutes. Um, and we've done this before here together in in our community. <clears throat> it's just the practice of Lectio Divina, which was, if you think about the time before the printing press when there was no Bible, um, for people in, common, in the common in people's hands. So scripture was read, and it was read aloud, and um, people listened, and so they didn't have the book. In front of them, they just had the words and the, and the um, somebody reading, and it was a, a, pro, a, a slow process where th- you would hear the word and um, and then you were given time to listen deeply to the word and then consider a word from the words and allow that word to become the word that would speak to you, and that word perhaps would then be turned around into a prayer based on what it was that you, it struck, what chord it struck in your heart. And then hopefully the prayer becomes an action. It translates into your into your life. So, um, so I'm going to read Psalm, just a couple of verses from Psalm 40, three, three times. And, my, and the invitation is that you would listen deeply to the words and that you would listen deeply for a word and that that word itself would begin to almost percolate inside of your own soul and that it might turn into a prayer, something that you can communicate and it might turn into something that you feel becomes an action as a result of that. So I'll just read this through three times. I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes to just sit with that. It's from Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God, Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in God. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock 
and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him.